This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. I know, but it's a joy uh, to be here. We love Tony, we love Michael, and we love you for all your support of the seminary. I know that your greatest joy is to see Christ exalted, and so that always makes it an easy task to come and preach at a church like that where you love Christ, so it's a joy to, to be here. If you have your Bibles, you could open up to Luke chapter 15, and I know that Tony's been preaching through the book of Acts, and I know sometimes people think of the book of Acts as the sequel to the gospel of Luke, but another way to think about that would be to see the book of Acts as sort of the main attraction, Christ building his church in the world, in every nation. So you could think of the book of Luke then as the prequel to the book of Acts, and not like a bad prequel like the Star Wars prequels, but a good prequel that is sort of laying the theological foundation for if you want to live a life on mission, seeing the glory of Christ spread to all peoples, the gospel of Luke sort of lays that foundation for you. And one of the most famous passages in the gospel of Luke to really believers and unbelievers alike is the parable of the prodigal son. And it's a parable that really touches on two wonderful things, two wonderful foundations for living life on mission, seeing Christ exalted among the nations. The first is this, it shows you where your sin can take you. And of course, that's not really an encouraging thing to think about many times, but it is encouraging when you're comparing it to the second thing that this parable emphasizes, the fact that the Father will always graciously receive you, no matter what you've done. And so let's pray, and then we'll look at this wonderful parable. Father, we want to hear your voice. We want to see Christ. It's what we need. It's our food, is to see you, and to see your Son, and to see him exalted. So Lord, I pray that you would remind us of these foundational truths that really stir our hearts every time we think about them. And they also stir our hearts to want to see you continue to do your work through Christ, even to the ends of the earth. Lord, as we've been reminded through song and through scripture reading, we are sinners. Lord, we didn't want anything to do with you. We were content to live lives on our own. We thought we knew better than to follow you and to follow your commands. We thought we'd find more joy and more satisfaction away from you than with you. And we were so dead wrong. Lord, real joy, real fulfillment is only found in you, and our sin led us to places we never thought we would go, to misery and life apart from you. And the amazing thing is, is that you went after us. You sought us out. You graciously allowed us to come to our senses, to have our eyes open, to see the desperate state that we were in, and then to be amazed that you would receive us through your Son. We know it was through his work on the cross that that reconciliation was possible, that sin could finally be dealt with and put away with forever so that we could enjoy a full-fledged acceptance into your family. Remind us of those things this morning. Remind us of all that we have in Christ so that we would be joyfully about what he's about in the world of telling other people this wonderful good news. Do that work. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 16, 
We have to look at that not-so-great truth and be amazed at where your sin can take you. 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and yet no one gave him anything. This is really a startling portrait of where sin takes you. Uh, if you're a believer, this is where your sin took you before you knew Christ. And if you don't know Christ, this is where sin is taking you even right now. And the first thing we see here from this, the perspective of the younger brother is that your sin blinds you to the goodness of your father. I mean, what does he say? What does he, request does he make? Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. This is a staggering request. And it's staggering on multiple levels. First is the amount that he's asking for is staggering. Give me the share of property that's coming to me. He's the younger of two sons, so he would get a third of his father's entire estate. And the younger son, I mean, he's probably in his teens or something like that, he's done nothing to contribute to the riches of his father. But he thinks he deserves it. So he basically says, hey, dad, why don't you calculate up your net worth Whatever number you come to, just mark down what a third is. Give that to me right now. It's staggering what he's asking for. It's also staggering because it sends a staggering message. When does someone usually get the share that is coming to them? When their father dies. So this is his way of basically saying, you know, Dad, I wish you were dead. I, it would just be a lot easier because I could just get what I want right now and I wouldn't have to wait around for you to actually die. I don't want you to be a part of my life. I want to just go do my own thing. So just give me what would come when you die right now. I mean, what a staggering message to send to your father. But it also comes at a staggering cost because what is he doing when he makes this request? He's severing all ties with his father. He's forsaking his father. And that's even more staggering because who does the father in this story represent? God. So he's willing to say, I don't want anything to do with my father. What kind of father is God pictured as? Someone who loves him. Someone that wants what's best for him. Someone that knows what's best for him and can actually give him what's best for him. And the son says, no, no, I'm going to go and I'm going to live on my own. Think about this. What does life in the father's house look like? I mean, it is unbelievably good. Think about the Garden of Eden. What was life like in the Garden of Eden? Fellowship, loving fellowship with God. Meaning, purpose, joy, fulfillment, every need met. And that's what he's willing to just sort of write off and say, I don't need this. 
I mean, what a heartbreaking miscalculation on the point of the younger brother. I mean, it's almost like Adam and Eve, right? I mean, that's what it kind of reminds you of. You're reading through Genesis, and you get to Genesis 3, and you see them being tempted by the serpent, right? The serpent says, you know, God doesn't know what's best for you. God's holding out on you. He knows that if you ate this, you'd be in a much better place than if you didn't. And as you read that, being a believer, you read that and you think, no, that is a lie. Do not follow after that. And yet, what do they do? They take the fruit. They're convinced that life would be better away from God. And that's the younger son. Life would be better if I could just get away from my father, live my own life. I could do what I want, buy what I want, get what I want, when I want. I'll finally find joy and fulfillment in everything I've been looking for. And the only thing holding me back is my father. He's forsaking a perfect, wonderful father for the pleading pleasures of sin. And that's the essence of sin. That's been the essence of sin from the very beginning. It's the essence of sin outlined given in this portrait of the younger son. Now, what's possibly even more staggering is that the father gives him exactly what he asked for. At the end of verse 12, he divided his share of property between them. So sin has blinded you to the goodness of your father, and now where, sin, where is sin going to lead in verse 13? Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. Your sin leads to reckless decisions. Right? Where does the son go? He goes to a distant land. That's not a good decision, right? You're going to take yourself out from every situation where you could potentially have support. You're going to go somewhere else where nobody knows you. You have no accountability, which is probably why he goes to a distant land. And then what happens? He squanders his property with reckless living. I mean, how reckless does it have to be that you could squander a third of your father's estate in just, who knows, a matter of months? I mean, buying things you don't need, spending money on temporary pleasures, he has nothing. This is where sin leads you. Look at verse 14. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So you're blinded to the goodness of your father, you're making reckless decisions, and then your sin leaves you unprepared for life's circumstances. A famine comes. How prepared is the younger son for a famine? Not at all prepared, right? He has nothing. He has no money, no family. He's in a distant land. There's nowhere to run. And this is where sin leaves you, in hopeless situations with nowhere to turn. And it gets worse. Verse 15. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and yet no one was giving him anything. Where does he end up in verse 15? Feeding pigs. Now, I like bacon as much as the next guy, but what you have to understand here is that this is a Jewish son, and he's feeding pigs. He's feeding an unclean animal. In fact, it's worse than that. He's actually wishing that he could eat the food that the unclean animal is eating. 
but he doesn't get to, right? So what's it saying? The pigs are in a better position than this son. That's where his sin has led him. He's gone from the goodness of the father's house to salivating over pig pods in verse 16. And that's a picture of where sin takes you. It's like, again, Genesis 3 to Genesis 4. You go from life in the garden with Adam and Eve in fellowship with God to Cain murdering Abel in one chapter. That's what sin does. Sin takes you to places that you never thought you would go. I mean, you leave your father thinking that you're going to experience life at its best and you end up more miserable than you could have ever imagined. I mean, the fact that this Jewish son goes from life in the father's house to feeding pigs, I mean, it's like if you grew up with an alcoholic parent and you swore, like, I'm never going to be like them. That's never going to happen to me. And yet sin can take you there. Sin can take you to places you swore you would never go. Or you came from a broken home and you thought, I'm not going to have a relationship like that. I'm going to love my spouse. I'm going to love my kids. We're always going to have a great relationship. And yet sin has the ability to take you to places to where you're estranged from your children. You're at odds with your spouse all the time. That's what sin can do. You think that your life is going to be better, that you'll finally be true to yourself, and you find yourself more miserable than you've ever been. That's what sin does. So you've squandered your wealth, your relationships. You find yourself with nowhere to run. What are you supposed to do? Well, you do what the sun does. You go home. Because the only thing more amazing than where your sin can take you is that you have a father who will always receive you when you come home. Look at verses 17 to 19. Be amazed that the father will always receive you. Verse 17 But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Just treat me as one of your hired servants. I love it's the father's character that finally leads him to repentance, right? He thinks back to life with his father after he's feeding pigs. He thinks, my father is the kind of guy who when he even just hires someone for one day, he amply supplies everything that they could possibly need. What am I doing? Why am I here? When I have a father like that, why am I feeding pigs? I'm going to go home. And then the younger brother, this just wonderful portrait of repentance. What do we see about true repentance here? First, it desires reconciliation. He says, I will go to my father. I want to be reconciled to him. And then this great confession of sin. I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. Notice the order. I mean, he finally comes to his senses. He realizes that, yes, I've sinned against my father in tremendous ways, but ultimately, who is this sin against? It's against heaven. It's against God. He finally sees that. And he says, I'm going to go home and I'm going to confess. I have sinned not only against my father, but I've also 
sinned against heaven. But then he also has the humility and the dependence to say that he's not worthy to be called a son. Right in verse 19, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. All he can do is cast himself on the mercy of his father. Right? There's no excuses. You know, he's not saying, you know, dad, if you would have never given me this inheritance and I wouldn't have wrecked my life. No, he doesn't think like that. He's completely humbled. He makes no claims. He doesn't assume that, well, I'm your son, so I'm going to come back home and you have to accept me because that's who I am. No, that's not what he does. He casts himself completely on the mercy of his father. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I'd be happy if you would just make me one of your servants. He doesn't assume that all will be forgiven. He doesn't assume that he is going to get his place restored back in the house. He's no longer the entitled, selfish son that left home. He's completely humbled, and he makes no claims. So how will the father respond to a repentant son? Well, we'll see that he responds with astonishing mercy, grace, love, and joy. Look at verse 20 to 24. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. This is the father's response to repentance. Always. The father is astonishingly eager to show compassion and love. I mean, the picture of the son as he's coming to his senses, you can almost see him, right? I mean, he's pacing back and forth. He's thinking like, I, I have to go home. I mean, it's the only thing that I can do. But I, I mean, I finally realized like, what did I do to my father? I mean, I wished he was dead. It's like, what am I going to say? How is he ever going to accept me? What's going to happen? The son is pacing back and forth thinking these things. And yet the picture we get of the father is that he's pacing back and forth. He's like, where's my son? I wish he would come home. I don't know what happened to him. Every head that comes over the horizon, he's hoping that it's his son. And then his son finally comes home. And what does he do? His heart overflows with love and compassion and he runs to meet his son. When was the last time you saw an old man run, right? Not in like an exercise outfit or something like that, but just no, regular clothes, old man running somewhere, right? He doesn't wait for his son to make it all the way home. He doesn't wait to hear his son's explanation. All he wants is to love and hug his son. And that's exactly what he does. He embraces him. Literally, that's he fell on his neck. It's like he was waiting for this moment for so long. My son is home. He falls on his neck. He kisses him. I mean, you can see the tears in his eyes. You can hear those sobs 
of joy. You can feel the compassion of his heart. His son is home. And just imagine it from his perspective, right? I mean, my son left. He wished I were dead. He took a huge sum of money, and I don't know where he is. And I don't know what kind of mess he's gotten himself into. I don't even know if he's alive. And then he finally comes home. This is how our Father responds when sinners come home. Always. Now imagine it from his perspective, right? He created us. He gave us nothing but good gifts, and we, like the younger son, basically said, I wish you were dead. You don't know what's best for me. I know what's best for me. And we ran away from home, and we ruined our lives. But in his grace, he allowed us to come to our senses. And this is how he welcomes us home. If you're a believer, I don't know if you've thought about it recently or at all, but this is how the Father welcomed you home when you finally repented of your sin. He didn't make you grovel. He didn't have his back turned. He didn't wait for you to walk all the way back home. He came running out to meet you. He didn't make you prove it. There was no probation period. As soon as you turned, he came and hugged you and kissed you and brought you back into his home. That's the father. That's the love of the father. But it gets even better because the father is also astonishingly gracious to welcome you fully into his family. Look at verse 21 and 22. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. So again, you can almost see the son. He's kind of nervous still. He's, he's had this prepared speech that he wants to give about how he sinned against heaven and against his father. It's almost like he has it on index cards, right? You can see him getting it out there as he's talking to his father. And he starts through on the index cards, not because he's insincere, but because he really wants to make sure that he says everything that he's prepared to say. And he starts reading it, Father, I've sinned against, and it's like the father just throws those index cards out of his hand and says, forget it, no, get the robe, put it on him. Get the ring, put it on his finger, put shoes on his feet. He is back in the family. That's what all these things represent. The robe, the ring, you are my son. You've always been my son and you are fully accepted into the family. This is how the father accepts you when you repent full-fledged acceptance into his family as his child. But it gets even more extravagant. Look at verse 23. And bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Right? Bring out the fattened calf. It is party time. I mean, the fattened calf was specially prepared for elaborate 
feast, like once a year kind of feast. So this is bigger than the Super Bowl spread that you had a week ago. This is bigger than Thanksgiving dinner. This is a celebration. This is like rent out the most expensive restaurant, order the most expensive things on the menu because of the significance of this event. There's no way we could overspend. That's how great this celebration is when a sinner comes home. Why? Because we were dead and now we're alive. We were lost and now we've been found. The Father wants to celebrate. Be amazed that the Father receives sinners in this way. No matter what you've done, if you repent and turn to him, this is how he will receive you. I mean, you might think, well, well, yeah, but you don't know. I mean, my life is such a mess. It doesn't matter. This is how he'll receive you. Yeah, but I mean, the people I've hurt, the bridges I've burned, it doesn't matter. This is how he will receive you. Yeah, but I don't even recognize myself anymore. I don't, can't even see what sin has done to me. It doesn't matter. This is how he will receive you. If you haven't come home yet, come home home, and the Father will receive you just like this. This is his heart for repentant sinners always, at all times. He wants to bring them back in. He wants to celebrate. He will receive you with joy. Now, this is the point where I wish I could just say, let's close in prayer, (laughs) because these two truths, back to back, the depths of your sin and yet the grace and love and compassion and mercy of the Father, that's where the story should end, right? That's where the parable should end. I don't know why Jesus went on, but it's like that's where he should have cut it off, right? Have the happy ending and then move on. But the story is not just about the younger son and the father. Look back at verse 11. How did Jesus open this parable? He said there was a man who had two sons, Now, I said this parable is only about two things. Be amazed at where your sin can take you and be amazed that the Father will receive you. So I'm going to have to recycle one of those points here. And I think it's the first one, unfortunately. Be amazed at where your sin can take you, part two. Because where is the older brother while all of this is happening? What's his response going to be? Well, look at verse 25 to 28. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Verse 28, but he was angry and refused to go in. What's going on with the older brother? Well, just like the younger brother, your sin blinds you to the goodness of your father. Right? You can see him. He hears, you know, there's a party going on, right? House is bumping, music's thumping. Hey, let me check this out. He finds a servant. Hey, what's going on? You know, I'm ready to party. I've been practicing my TikTok moves. What's happening at home? And the servant is probably excited. He says, your brother's home. Right? The one you've been so worried about. The one, we didn't know what happened to him. You know, your father's been pacing back and forth every day, hoping that he comes home. He's finally home. And there's a party. 
10, what's the older brother's response? Anger. A huge party is happening, and he's angry, and he refuses to participate. He will not go in. So at the end of verse 28, what happens? His father came out and entreated him. He's pleading with him. I mean, you can imagine the servant goes back to the father and says, hey, I, you know, I, I, told, I told your son, you know, that the, his brother's home and there's a party and, and he kind of got angry. I'm not really sure why, but he seems kind of salty about the whole thing. And what, how should the father respond? How would you respond if you were the father? It's like, that spoiled brat. It's like, he can go stay outside. But what does this father do? He's a loving father. He loves his older son as much as he loves his younger son. He goes out to him and pleads with him, begs him, come home, come in, celebrate with us. But he doesn't want to. Why? Because he's blind to the goodness of his father. He doesn't see his father's welcoming of the younger son as a good thing. It's a bad thing. And so we see something else that sin does. Your sin grotesquely distorts your perceptions of life and other people. Look at verse 29 and 30. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? I mean, the father is pleading, come home, come in, celebrate. And this older son is saying, no, I'm not going to come in. Every day of my life, I've been serving you. I always do what you ask me to do. And what the thanks do I get? Nothing. You're not even willing to give some small thing like a goat for me and my friends to celebrate. But this son of yours comes home who's devoured your wealth with prostitutes and you roll out the red carpet for him? I'm not coming in. I'm not going to celebrate that. You're a gullible old fool that you would welcome your son like this. I mean, look how distorted this older brother's sin has made him. I mean, he has an exaggerated view of his own righteousness, right? I've been serving you every day. I've never disobeyed one of your commands. Like, is that even true? Probably not. And yet that's how he perceives himself. He's also hyper-focused on these perceived inequalities that he's experiencing, right? He has these respectable friends, and his father, he's not even willing to buy McDonald's for them to go and have a party, but this son of his who comes home, who's devoured his wealth with prostitutes, oh, you get the fattened calf for him. You give him a, you know, a 10-course meal. He also has broken relationships that you see here. He's not willing to go in and celebrate with the family. He never calls his father father in these verses. And when he refers to his brother, how does he refer to him? This son of yours and you kill the fattened calf for him? Like, you mean your brother? He doesn't see it that way. His brother's dead to him, gone. And that's what sin does to you. It grotesquely warps your view of God and others. And consequently, your sin prevents you from participating in the greatest 
joys of heaven. This is the greatest kind of party that can be thrown on earth when a sinner repents. And the older son is where? Outside. Now the father is, continues to be amazingly gracious. Look at verse 31. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But it was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The father reminds him, who is this that we're talking about? Not my son, just my son, your brother. And he was what? He was dead. Now he's alive. He was lost, but now he's found. I mean, the father continues to show patience and gentleness with his older son, and yet he will not apologize for his celebration of the younger son returning home. He says, we had to celebrate because when something that was dead becomes alive, when something that lost becomes found, we have to celebrate and rejoice. And this brings up the question, really, of why is this parable arranged the way it is? Why did Jesus tell it this way? Why didn't he just leave it with a happy ending? Because Jesus is talking to a certain group of people back in Luke 15, verse 1. Who is this parable for? Verse 1, chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So what's going on? The Pharisees see that Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. And their thought is, I mean, doesn't he know who these people are? I mean, they're the scum of the earth. They don't honor God in any way. And so Jesus tells them this parable to show them the heart of the Father towards sinners and to expose their self-righteous hearts. And this is actually the third of three parables, right? The first two parables are almost identical. The first parable is there's a lost sheep. And it's as though Jesus is saying, okay, so you have a lost sheep. What do you do if you lose something valuable? You go look for it. And if you find it, what should your response be? Joy, right? You lose something, you find it, you receive, there's great joy, right? That's the right response, right? Yes. Okay, well, what if you lose a coin? You lose a coin, what do you do when you lose something valuable? You look for it. And if you find it, what should you do? You should rejoice, right? Those are the right responses you should have. You lose something valuable, you look for it, you rejoice. What do you do when you lose something valuable? You look for it. What does the older brother do when his younger brother is lost? Nothing. And if it's found, what should you do? Rejoice. What does the older brother do? He gets angry. So do you see what's going on here? You see why Jesus is telling this parable? This is the answer to the question, why does Jesus eat with sinners and tax collectors? Because that's what you do when something valuable is lost. You go and you look for it, and you want to bring it back home. 
I mean, that's the point of Luke's gospel, especially as you think about it leading into Acts. What did Jesus come to do in Luke 19? He came to seek and save the lost. In other words, he did what the older brother was supposed to do. The older brother should be searching for his younger brother and rejoicing when he's found. But he's at home stewing in bitterness and self-righteousness. Jesus is the son of the father who goes out and seeks for his lost brothers and sisters and brings them home. This is a powerful, hard, loving rebuke of self-righteous people. To those who tend to judge the sins of others, to be disgusted by them rather than seek to save them. I mean, who do the Pharisees hate in this context? Two groups are mentioned, the prostitutes, the older brother mentions those in Luke 15, and then the tax collectors from earlier in the chapter. So who are the prostitutes of today? The sexually immoral. Who are the tax collectors of our day? Corrupt government officials. Who do Christians have a reputation for hating? The sexually immoral and corrupt government officials. I mean, it's like, look at these people. Look at them with their rainbow flags and their pride parades, just doing whatever they want, no care about God. Look at these officials, drunk with power, mandating whatever they want. I wish God would deal with them. I mean, they're an offense to God. God should just come and deal with them. Well, how does Christ deal with them? He eats with them. He seeks them out. He wants to save them. They're not an object of scorn. They're an object of seeking to save. This is how Christ deals with sinners and tax collectors. And the implication is this is how his people should deal with sinners and tax collectors. We should be people that seek and save the lost. Jesus is the son of the father who goes after the wayward. And this should do two things for us. First, it should make us rejoice because we acknowledge that we are the wayward. We are the ones that make a mess of our lives. We're the ones that were convinced that we knew what life would be better on our own than in the Father's house. And we love the first part of this parable because we see ourselves in the younger brother. But there's a way in which that younger brother can morph into the older brother throughout the course of our Christian life where we start to think, you know, I kind of deserve what God's given me. And when I look at these people and their sin, it's like, they don't deserve that. I mean, God should really deal with them. But the other thing this parable should do is just confront our hearts, that we should be like Christ, that we should want to go out and seek and save the lost. And when we do that, we actually have this incredible opportunity to participate in the greatest joys of heaven when sinners repent and finally find their way back home. This is often called the parable of the prodigal son, singular, but really should be the parable of the prodigal sons, plural, because both sons find themselves outside of the house. The younger son has the good sense to come home, acknowledging his sin, casting himself fully on the mercy of the father, and the father welcomes him with joy. 
If that's you, if you're the younger son and you're not home yet, come home. The father will receive you with joy. He'll throw his arms around you. He'll kiss you. He'll run out to meet you. And he'll receive you with joy. Now the older son, at the end of this parable, he's outside. He remains outside. And we're left to kind of wonder what's gonna, what will happen to him. We're kind of left to wonder what would we do in that situation. Would we continue in self-righteousness or will we come inside and experience the joy of the Father in his welcoming of sinners? So will we continue to look at sinners with contempt or will we look at them with compassion? The way that Christ looks at us as sheep without a shepherd. You know, we have an opportunity to sort of be a party planner in the household of God where we get to go out and invite people to come home, to tell them that there's a father who will always receive them and when they come home, there will be a party. Now, this isn't just an invitation to come inside the house and enjoy one party. This is really an invitation to join your brother, Jesus Christ, in his ongoing mission to seek and save the lost. That's why it's here. That's why it leads right perfectly into the book of Acts because that's what we're still doing. Taking part with our brother, Jesus Christ, to seek and to save the lost, to tell sinners that they can come home and they will receive the joy and love and compassion of their father. So when the sin of others tempts you to go the other way, may it be a reminder to seek them out, to be like Christ, to eat with them just as the way that Christ did you. Because if you do that, you will get to experience the greatest joys of heaven when a sinner repents and finally comes home.